0: Come on, come on in. If you're observant of these little videos at the beginning of each of the weeks of this series, you'll notice that they all emphasize a different vantage point, a different perspective from three of the three different characters. I am so excited about this series—a a study of the, what some would call the king of the parables, the parable of the prodigal son. I will confess, though I love them all, this one stands out in my heart as the one that has most transformed and continues to transform my life. And I've never done a uh, 3 weeks You say, Jeff, haven't you preached the prodigal son? Of course. But only one week, you know, on the whole parable. Three weeks on the same parable. Uh, it's going to be a lot, of, a lot of fun. How are you all? It's good to see everybody. Uh, Happy New Year to you, I hope You had a wonderful break, really enjoyed uh, some time with family. Uh, I I did actually this week. I got to go skiing with my son, Jake. Uh, As it turned out, my daughters were unable to join, so my wife and the girls stayed home while Jake and I went out to Colorado to join my parents and, and skied for a few days, and we just had a riot. If you were to ask Jake, Jake, what was your favorite part of the ski trip? Without hesitation, Jake would say, it was that time when dad slid down the mountain on his belly like a penguin. Uh, He fell, I would point that out. He fell, and when he fell, he finally got up and he turned around. And sure enough, I went about 30 feet on my belly, like this, just sliding down. He laughed, thought it was the funniest thing he ever saw. Now, let me describe that same event not from Jake's perspective, but from my own, all right? A little different. See, there's more to the story. Uh, Jake's fall started with a very unusual fall. He, he actually fell backwards. This is hard for me to describe, so pay attention here. He fell back, but his rear end was on his skis, and he laid back on the snow. And if you're still on your skis that much and your skis are pointed downhill, though you're down, you're still going to go. And that's what he did. He was screaming down the mountain, completely out of control, laying back like this, and headed right towards trees. And I thought, my son's going to die. And so this, this paternal, heroic thing rose up in me, and I decided I'm going to go after him. I'm going to get to him before he gets to the trees. And so I took off like a bolt. My my heroic instinct exceeds my ability on the slopes. <laughs> What happened was I hit a bump, they call them moguls. I hit it going so fast that I popped out of both of my skis and launched like, you know, a bird through the air. As I'm flying through the air, I see Jake tip over and I realize he stopped and he's okay. And so this journey was unnecessary, but there's nothing I can do about it now. And so I tucked and rolled and went head over heels for a while and then, bam, flopped on my stomach and that's when the penguin thing happened and I slid the rest of the way. For me... (laughs) The feeling was absolute humiliation. Here, I'm going to save my son, but who's going to save me? You know, I, 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 I was just realizing what a fool you are, Jeff. What a fool you are. So that was my perspective. Here, how about a third perspective? My mother, who still skis at 74 years of age, was behind us, and my mom, she just looked and she saw skis go flying everywhere, poles, and she saw me rolling head over heels, and my mom was terrified, convinced I was going to die. My mom had pure terror in her heart as she watched what she believed to be the demise of her oldest son. And so One thinks it's hilarious, penguin man. The other thinks it's humiliating, failure savior. And the other thinks it's horrible, my son's going to die. Who's right? They all are. From different vantage points, we're able to see different aspects of the same event. And that's how this series is going to work. The prodigal son is such a rich story. As we take time to view the story from the eyes of the father this week, and then through the eyes of the son, next week, and then through the eyes of the older brother, the third week, we will understand the parable. We will understand the concept of grace. Really, that's what it's all about, is grace. Do you know about grace? It's at the core of the, the Christian experience, and it has the power to utterly transform our lives. And we're going to learn, and we're going to experience more about grace than we ever have before. I can't wait. So we should probably start with the perspective of the Father found in Luke 15. Now the Father, let me remind you, symbolizes God the Father in this story. And so really, this is trying to get into the heart of God. How does God see it? How does God experience it? What does God feel? You ready for a journey into the heart of God? Let's do it. Luke 15 if you're wanting to read along in the Bible in your CPEC, you'll find that on page 1048, 1,048. Luke 15, verse 11. Jesus continued, "'There was a man who had two sons. Now the younger one said to his father, "'Father, give me my share of the estate.'" And so the father divided his property between them, and not long after that, that younger son, he got together all he had, and he set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. All right. Let's pause. As we try to say, how does the father experience this drama? What is his emotional experience? Well, as you can probably guess, what the son did was deeply painful to the father. Deeply. There is an insult in what the son does. There is a assault it's almost like a slap in the face no it's more than that is i studied it this week i saw that there are four individual slaps to the face that this son does to the father and what he does can i point them out four times the the son just humiliates and hurts the heart of the father here's the first one when the son says give me my share Uh, this father, was a father of means. He's got an estate. He's got a farm. He's got employees. He's got a, a significant thing going. And the boy says, I want my inheritance, and I want it now. See, the awkwardness is not getting an inheritance. The plan was probably for the boy to get an inheritance. It's the timing that's insulting. A little detail, and that is that the dad's not dead yet. That's when you're supposed to get the inheritance. And when the son demands it pre-death, it's as if the boy is saying, oh my goodness, Father, how long are you going to live? I am sick and tired of waiting for you to die. I can't take it anymore. Give it to me now. It's as if the son is saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. And the father's like, what are you saying, son? I want my inheritance now. And the father, deeply wounded, says, okay. And the passage says that he divided the property between his two boys. Not long after that, so this is another event. uh, The younger son got together all he had. Let's highlight that. I, I didn't see the significance of this statement. I always assumed that was like meaning he packed his suitcase. He got together all he had, you know, let's pack it up. But it's far more significant than that actually. The Greek that's here is synegagon panta, which means to convert all your property into cash is what it means, to gather all you've got. It's to liquidate your assets, and this is huge, because the ancient tradition in that time was that inheritance involved not only the receiving of, of property, but receiving of the responsibility to carry on the family business. There was an expectation with inheritance that you'd if the, if the father's got a good name, you would manage things to perpetuate that good name. And so the, the expectation was that this boy would would lead this farm, and he does just the opposite. He sells the farm. The devastating blow to the family business is beyond uh, what we at first would see. Let me just help you grasp it. Uh, First of all, the fathers built this business carefully, hiring good employees, enough employees to manage the size of farm that he's got. And, And they, in those days, would build housing for their employees right on the estate. They'd build uh, facilities to store the crop the right size for the size of the farm. The systems matched the size of the farm, and suddenly, by the doing of this boy, half the land is gone. Can you imagine? It's upside down now. Massive layoffs required. Good employees that are like family who have been loyal for a lifetime. Gone. Gone. This was an insulting, devastating blow to the father's business and his reputation in the community. Son says, I don't care. Sell it. It's mine. Wow. What about next? He set off for a distant country. Uh, we, we, we don't, in our culture, understand the humiliation of leaving. You know, we are a uh, mobile community, and so kids growing up and. Going out of state to live is normal. It will not happen in my family. My children are not allowed to leave. They can go to a neighboring town of Naperville, and that's about it. But then, uh, Jesus didn't do this sort of thing, and so when the son leaves, it's personal rejection. It's the son saying, Dad, you know what I long for? I long for a life without you. Dad, I dream of a life without you. My heart is filled when my life is devoid of you. The personal rejection in his leaving is beyond our capacity to understand. Wow, boom, 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 one more. And there in that distant land, he squandered, wasted all of his father's wealth in wild living. Uh, You don't know what wild living is, but let me explain you probably can imagine, while living, is partying and using money to gain friends and create good times. And you say to yourself, well, the father really didn't know about this last one. He saw the first three, but this happened out of his sight. Yeah, that's true. But later in the story, we're told that the the, the people back home got word of what the son was doing. We know that because the older son says, dad, your son, didn't call him, my brother. He says, your son squandered all your money on prostitutes. And so the the word of this squandering got back to the father. And you can imagine the father saying, I worked my whole life to create this wealth. And my son just burned through it all in scandalous lifestyle that goes against the way I raised him, goes against the morality of God. Oh, the grief caused to this father. Why am I just helping us understand this so profoundly? Well, one of the things you need to understand of the ancient world is what's happened. What did this father feel? Well, I'll tell you what fathers did in the first century Jerusalem. They would do a little ceremony, a a, a statement, if you will, a, a prop demonstration where they would take a, a jug, a, a clay jug, and when a son dishonored the family name, when a son rejected the, the father in such a humiliating, humiliating way as this, and it happened, they would do something called the, the kazaza. The kazaza is where they took the pot, and the father would hold a hammer, and he'd look at the boy who had dishonored the family name, and he would smash the clay jar. And he would smash it to symbolize the broken state of their relationship. He would say, in a sense, to his son, there was a day when we were family, when there was a relationship. Well, son, this is what you have done. Smash. You have irreparably destroyed and damaged our relationship. You're cut off. In fact, kazaza means the cutting off you're done. You chose to be free. Free you are. You are no longer a part of this family. That's what's going on here. Now, you say, man, what a terrible, terrible son. Before you get too hard on him, you should know that's you. As you try to relate to this story, we are, if the the father's like God the father, we are like the son. And you say I've never done such despicable things folks here let me help you you have wounded the heart of the father i have wounded the heart of the father more than we ever know things we've done that are immoral that we've long forgotten god remembers ways that god set biblical expectation that we've failed to live out god remembers Ways that he's called us to be bold representatives of him to a world that needs him and we've been quiet, he remembers. Ways that we've been called to be selfless lovers of our children and as parents we've failed, he remembers. Ways that we've been called to love our spouse and we haven't. Want me to continue? We are all failures. We are deserving of the kazaza. The breaking and God saying, we're done. You shattered the relationship. You rebelled. Well, this is getting real personal, real quick. Shall we continue? It says that, verse 14, after the son in this distant land, after he had spent everything, he just burned through it all, there was a severe famine in that whole country and the son began to be in need. And so he actually went out and hired himself to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. The boy longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Oh my. Folks, uh, this is so desperate. Let, Let me just help you see what's going on here. The, for a while, uh, is always the case, you know, we say, oh, I'm going to go have fun. I'm going to go rebel. And there's joy for a season in sin, but eventually that season will pass. And, and the, the true folly of rebellion will become evident. And that's what happens with this boy. He burns through all of his money. All those friends who were by his side when he was rich are now gone saying, hey, bud, we're out of here. And he finds himself so desperate that he needs a job. Times are hard, the economy is bust. And so the only job he can find is feeding pigs. And to you, that may not sound so bad, but to a Jewish kid, (laughs) that was the most unthinkable job. Pigs were avoided as the disgusting, unclean animal. They didn't eat pork, still don't, Jews. And so feeding pigs was like the worst job imaginable. He's being paid, but apparently the pay is so pathetic, there's not even enough to buy enough food for him. And so he is still so hungry that he longs to eat the pods, the pigs are eating, pig slop. In fact, I I discovered that the carob tree pod is what they fed pigs there in those days. And the carob tree pod is indigestible to human beings, though edible to a pig, And so the boy is longing for that which is not even food. I mean, that's how bad he is. And in this place of absolute brokenness, he comes to his senses. Look at verse 17. When he came to his senses, he said. Can I just pause? Sometimes we got to hit rock bottom before we wake up and see the folly of our ways. And that's what's going on with this boy. He's like, I don't need my father. I'm going to find life. I'm going to live. Woo-hoo. I don't care who I hurt or what I do to my father's heart. I'm going for it. And all of a sudden, what he's done becomes clear to him. And in his tears, he comes to his senses and he says, oh, no, I've done a terrible thing. Terrible thing. When he came to his senses, look what he says. How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to set out. I'm going to go back to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. That's I've, I've sinned against God. I've sinned against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son, but would you make me one of your hired servants? He knows of the kazaza. He knows that he's destroyed the familial relationship with the father. But he says to himself, maybe my dad will just hire me. Maybe if I promise to work hard, I can get a job. And so he says, it's a long shot, but I got to give it a try. And so verse 20 says, when he got up, he went to his father. Can you imagine that long walk back to his hometown, down those roads, now, apparently he was barefoot. Later on, it'll say he needs sandals. So he's so poor, he's barefoot. You can imagine his clothes are tattered and torn and hasn't washed them in months, hasn't washed himself in months, smells like pig. And as he walks down this road, look what happens. It says, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. All right, now we're getting there. Folks, this is... The, the moment that we've been looking at, the, 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 the boy is just in a state of utter humiliation, and as he nervously approaches his father's estate, he looks down the driveway to the house, and I imagine the father looking out the window, and they make eye contact. Here, we're going dis- to what would what's the father going to do? We, we've been after the perspective of the father. What is the father's heart towards really disgusting, rebellious kids? What is expected? You know, all of a sudden the dad was in the window, but now he's not. And the boy thinks, okay, he went to get the, the clay jug, and I know what he's doing. He's, he's going to get the, the, the hammer. He's, he's going to come down to me, and he's going to look me in the eyes. And he's going to say, hello, young man. You know what you've done. Get out of here. We had a relationship. You destroyed it. You made your will known. You made your bed son. Now you got a lie in it. Turn around. Be on your way. Go back to where you came from. That's what you'd expect. But that is not what we see. As we continue in the passage, we find these unbelievable words. It says, But while he was still a long way off and his father saw him, His father was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Can I try to help you make this come alive? Uh, This father uh, goes out of the window, but it's not to go get the jar, it's to burst out of the door. And he takes off running. you got to know that in that ancient culture, men didn't run. Running was undignified. Children ran. Running was child's play. A dignified man would always walk slowly. Running required them to lift up their robe, expose their legs, which they just didn't do. This dad doesn't care. My boy! And like a crazy man, he is running down the street. What does the passage say? wraps his arms around his boy. Imagine him lifting him up and spinning him around, my boy. And then what does it say he kissed him? And the verb tense here makes it clear that this is a repeated kiss and kiss and kiss. And I didn't as a Norwegian, I didn't understand that till I married a Greek. And I, I now have been infused in the Mediterranean world and these Greek ants grab me by the side of the head and they kiss both cheeks again and again and I thought it was weird and now I love it. And that's what's going on here. This dad is saying, my son, I love my son. I love you, son. Really? That's what the father does? Really? That's what the father does. But you say, the boy doesn't deserve that. Oh, you are so right on that point. That's why it's called grace. In fact, let me put up grace here. Grace is God's unmerited favor. It's a foreign dynamic to us. It's scandalous. It's shocking. Grace is not deserved. Favor means God's love and God's blessing and God's goodness on behalf of people who don't deserve it. This is so weird to us because we function as a world on a merit-based system. You get love and blessing when you do well and deserve it, right? I mean, it starts in school. Little kids learn that if I can do uh, good in my class, my homework, I'll get good grades and I'll get praise. If I do poorly, just the opposite. And then we go to the sports team and we discover if I perform well, I'll make the team and we'll win games and get trophies and be celebrated. If I do poorly, none of it. And then we go to work and we discover that if I perform well, if I'm really a quality person, I may get promotions and raises and accolades. And if I don't, I get nothing, lose my job. And that's just the way that our world operates. Even people, as we relate to them, we we say, if I'm a wonderful person, if I'm beautiful, if I have beauty that wins them, or if I treat them exceptionally well, then they will like me. And if I don't, they won't. And when we turn to God, because we've been just uh, saturated in a merit-based system, we assume that if I'm a quality individual, if I do things okay, pretty well, God's really going to like me. And if I fail, ugh. And it doesn't work that way. God's love is from a different planet. It's not merit-based. Again, in our love, the lover loves the beloved because of beauty in the beloved. In God's system, the lover loves the unlovable, and you say, if there's no beauty to woo the love, why where why is the love come? It's because of the character of the lover. The explanation for the love of God, the grace, the unmerited favor of God, is an understanding of God's very unique nature. The Bible says God is love. What that means is there's something about Him that is naturally capable of adoring. The unworthy one. This is unlike our dynamics we've experienced in life. and I think it's so hard, why it's so hard sometimes for us to enjoy God's love for us is because we're like, I don't love myself. I disgust myself. Why would I think otherwise when God's looking at me? I think I disgust him. And we assume what God's heart is like rather than turning to the book and saying, Lord, what is your heart like towards those like me. And so grace must be not only understood as the way of God, it must be that we're convinced it's the way of God, that we view ourselves and God and our relationship through the lens of grace. Only then will we flourish as God intended. You know, I'll share a little something that happened this week. Jake and I, again, were in Colorado. My mom and dad had a condo with a couple rooms, and so they gave us a room to share, our bachelor pad. (laughs) You know, my wife is always reminding us to pick up our socks. Well, she wasn't there, and so we, socks, leave them there, and it just brought Jake and I great joy to do that, and (laughs) bath towel, coat, just fling it anywhere, and it wasn't long before it looked like a tornado had gone through our bachelor pad. And as we were enjoying it, I did think of one consequence. I said, Jake, uh, we got to keep the door closed so that Grandma can't see it. Isn't that terrible? I'm teaching my son image management. I'm, I'm teaching him that, Jake... We've been loving grandma's love on us. She's just been treasuring us, and yet she doesn't know what a mess we are. And if we can keep her from knowing that, it's all good. But if she finds out, happy grandma won't be happy grandma anymore. And so let's hide the mess so we enjoy the relationship. And that's what we do with people. We have all this junk in us, and we do our best to do image management and Keep all that junk behind. I mean, they're going to see some of it, but we try to get people to see as little as possible so that their response to us will be better. And some people try to do that with God. <laughs> he can see in the room. Let me just tell you, you can't hide any of it from God. And you're like, well, then I'm, I'm toast. No, grace. The unbelievable thing with God is you can open the door. As they say, come on in, look, whoo, I'm a mess. Hug me. And in the mess, God embraces, as he did the sun covered in pig slop on that road. Grace is an unbelievable thing. We don't have to hide. We don't have to pretend. We can call it what it is. Here, I'll give you an assignment, all right? You came to church, you're gonna get an assignment. It's like school. Here's what your assignment is. Find some time alone. Maybe it's lying in bed. Sometimes I do this when I lie in bed at night and I'm staring at the ceiling. I will bring to mind my own failure, a specific one. Something that I did that I shouldn't do or some way that I'm not living up to what God calls me to as a Christian, as a husband, as a father, as a pastor. I will bring a specific failure to mind. It's like pig slop that I can smell. And with that in mind, I'll say, Lord, you still love me? And I'm reminded of the biblical reality. And God says, yes, Jeff, I've never loved you because you're impressive. You're not. (laughs) I love you because I operate by grace. And I adore you. But Lord, all right, let's test another. And I bring up a different sin. And I'm, but remember, remember that one? Lord, do you still love me? Of course, Jeff. And I bring up the worst. Sometimes I think that if I, if I can get him out of my mind, God's not thinking about him and he'll love me more. That's crazy talk. Just bring him to mind. Bring him to the forefront. Hold him out and say, do you still love me? And he will embrace you and say, more than you'll ever know. The grace of God is our lifeline. It is the key to a thriving enjoyable, transformational friendship with the Almighty God. It's a love of another kind. You may not be loved by your spouse. You may not be loved by your children anymore. You may not be loved by your coworkers and your neighbors and your parents. There is one who loves you with an intensity that is scandalous. And that is God the Father. And it's revealed through the prodigal son. Hey, we're going to celebrate that grace. We're going to try to press into that grace experientially by taking communion. Communion is a grace celebration. Do you realize that? Communion is us coming, you know, with all the junk on us, all the sin on us, and saying, here we are. And communion is a celebration of the forgiveness we receive through Jesus Christ. As we hold up the bread, as we hold up the cup, we're toasting grace, We're we're saying these symbolize the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. Jesus came to rescue us. Like like the Father running down the road, so Jesus came from heaven to rescue us. And do we deserve it? No, not at all. But he came nonetheless. Oh, the grace. I'm going to pray. Then the ushers are going to come forward and pass out the communion elements. Hold them during this song, and then we'll take them together. Jesus, thank you for teaching us this parable. We needed this glimpse. We need this glimpse into the heart of the Father. Would you please, Lord, help us to believe that grace is real, that this is who you are as you say That this is who you are. And God, not only I want to believe it, we want to experience it. We want to see it. We want to feel it. And even as we take communion, (laughs) we celebrate grace. It's for us. And we don't deserve any of it. The heroic rescue that brought us forgiveness of sin is undeserved. And we receive it with thanks.